what I'm looking forward to is really the data sharing opportunities that the states have. Today on State Scoop's Priorities podcast from Scoop News Group, boosting trust in government with better digital services, and AWS's moves to support K-12 cybersecurity. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Delaware is implementing its own Data Privacy Act into law. The law signed this week by Governor John Carney makes the state the 12th in the country with a comprehensive consumer data privacy law on the books. Delaware's version provides consumers the right to know if a business possesses their data, correct that data, request that businesses delete that data, and obtain a copy of the data a business might have. The National Association of State Chief Information Officers announced the finalists of its annual State IT Recognition Awards program. The association named 31 finalists across 10 categories, ranging from cybersecurity to business process innovation. More than 80 NACIO members selected the finalists from a pool of more than 100 entries. A new generative artificial intelligence policy outlines how executive branch agencies in Kansas can embrace the new technology in a way that prioritizes citizen data and privacy while remaining nimble enough to adapt to new innovations. The policy, which came from the state's IT office, applies to all business involving the state. You can find these stories and more at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. Government technology software company Civic Plus found that local governments can boost public trust by offering government services in a digital format and providing administrative transparency. The findings included in a new report from the company found that residents in communities with digital services technologies are more satisfied and trusting of their governments. Brendan Elwood is the vice president of market research at Civic Plus. Elwood tells StateScoop's Kelly Quinlan about the findings. Our hypothesis is for sure that there's a relationship um, with technology and how our customers um, and our customers' customers are interacting with one another. So that digital engagement is vital. And we get a lot of great feedback from our customers. We travel around quite a bit. Like I said, I was in Florida talking with folks and, and, and we get that customer feedback that we're actually affecting change, which is good. But our leadership was like, well, let's, let's understand it from the resident's perspective better, right? Um, we have a lot of great anecdotal evidence. So on this one, how we went about it was online surveying. And we, we drafted a battery of questions. And, and so this is kind of a longitudinal analysis. So we we survey periodically. And um, we, we really didn't understand or know what the key drivers, so to speak, of satisfaction or trust could be. So we started with a battery of questions and, and, and tried to figure it out, right? Because from my point of view, when you look at satisfaction and trust, there, there's kind of two different dynamics. Satisfaction is more transactional, right? So if I have a service, I, I, I turn on my tap and I get good clean water. So that's great. And now I get a bill, so I'll pay it. If the bill goes up, I may be a little questionable about that. But but as long as I'm getting this service, you know, I'm satisfied. But trust starts speaking more into the emotional paradigm. And, and the two aren't mutually exclusive either. So so from our point of view, we just really wanted to understand this, this relationship, this dynamic, this paradigm a lot better. So just a bunch of questions together, started honing it in over time, and then narrowed it down to where we feel really confident that we can capture thematically what are those important features of, of, of satisfaction and trust from a resident's perspective. And, and so that was how we set out, let's understand it from the resident standpoint, from our customers' customers, because if we can really get sharp and knowledgeable in that space, then we become a better consultative service provider for our customers, right? Um, we know what they're doing. We know what our customers want, they tell us. 
but we also need to understand what is it that the residents want so that we can start building our solutions better because that's our key focus is making that resident experience better because because we we consider ourselves the the modern if you will the modern civic experience platform you can only achieve that if you're talking to all of the users that are accessing that platform. So you're saying this is a longitudinal study. How long of um, how long were the survey responses, you know, taken, and how many people were included in the like final numbers that are in the report? So the the, the final numbers in the report, um, we have a bunch of different surveys that we've ran over time, and so all in all, we're just over sixteen thousand people have participated in our studies and the battery of questions, we keep a battery of questions consistent for each and then we add different modules to get into more specific uh, questions. So some of these modules could be a base size around 2000, but we're all, that's probably be about the minimal one for like a particular question of the que of folks that answered that question, if that makes sense. And so cumulatively we're at over 16,000 people um, and we started middle of last year and we do two big national ones and we're gonna keep it going on for probably indefinitely. Our key is to keep, uh, our focus is to have a pulse and trying to identify these trends and build a good database so that we can really start reflecting on how better to hone in our services as well as provide better um, solutions for our customers. Now mentioned in the report that I I thought was interesting was we're, we're you know, we're talking about uh, ease of access, right, with mm -hmm. technology to information um, and to, you know, uh, government operations, right, like a window in. And you're saying, or I guess in the report, what it says is, as compared to analog interactions, mm -hmm. obviously, like the digital side of things tends to be more satisfactory. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you give me a couple examples of what those analog interactions are? Calling in walking in in person, sending uh, communications via mail, those type of things. And then our, our, our findings, I think, line up pretty well with what I've seen in the past from, say, Pew on how folks interact with their local government. Um, and then from the digital side, we, we were looking at it from mobile and online computers, right? And so does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I was just curious as to what that, like, encompassed, basically. Yep. Yep. Uh, like the old school way of doing things, which is walking totally. the building. <laughs> well, you know, it's great because, you know, I, I talked to a lot of different customers and prospects and, and even as early as last month, I was talking to folks that were just getting their first website or just now accepting credit card payments. Um, but, but what we hear quite a bit is that there are always this pockets of the community that really want that person to person transaction. And mm -hmm. this could be for a lot of different reasons. One, it's part of their routine. To they now know that that payment was actually delivered to, to Judy at the front desk of City Hall, and they've known Judy for 20 years, right? So, so there is this great communal uh, thing that comes to life with that person in-person transaction, and we're never going to get away from, uh, you know, from that, but what we're contending is that with the right technology solutions in place, you can start providing better access, more frictionless one-stop access for the resident to easily find the information they need. And we know from our study that uh, building that trust, you, you really need to have transparency is, is number one, access to information and solving problems quickly. So if you can start looking at these different categories or themes of services that you can provide from a technology standpoint, 
you start building trust. And, and there's plenty of work out there, uh, research out there, operational transparency is what it's called, um, that you can reference as well. And it, you, you just lift the veil so folks can see how the government's working. And then if you give them the power to actually be involved with that in a positive way, they then start, it, it ultimately impacts their satisfaction and trust with the municipality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now you're, you were talking a little bit earlier about like the emotion, emotional affect of mm -hmm. trust. Why do you think that that is so important right now, like contextually in this moment and why is the route to go in, you know, boosting that digital mm -hmm. services? It's a good question. Um, I think the, the first part is more of Brendan's interpretation. Uh, right, so I don't have hard data on what I'm going to tell you, but if you look at trust at the federal level and at the leadership level, it's usually low, right? State level kind of gets a little bit better, but down at the local level, it, it, it's a little bit stronger. And the reason for that is that in a local uh, community, they have better, the public, the residents, they have better influence on who the decision makers and the leadership there, right? You can attend city council meetings. You can actually go in and, and look and see and find the information you need. Now, obviously, if you make it easier for them, that's being more access to information and transparency. So they'll trust you, right? So that lifts the veil of that trust because, oh, I went on the website, three clicks in, I found what I needed. They're not hiding anything from me. And two, if you, if you think about it this way, when folks interact with a municipality, again, this is Brendan's hypothesis, anecdote, focus group of one, just based on all my observations, um, usually it started from a point of confusion or maybe a, even kind of a heated emotional state. I have a bill to pay. I don't know if I'm late. I don't, you know, the government has authority over me in some way. They've raised my taxes. There's something that the government is, is posing and I just don't know. So I'm going to go in there guarded, stressed. And, and then if you think about it from the inside the municipality side, poor folks on the front line have to deal with that emotion, right? And so if that interaction is improved, people can find that information, then trust starts to happen. They have better control over it. So that's why I think trust at the local level is different than the federal level, but it, it's also something that is easier to move the needle on if you just provide more information and have more transparency. Right. Now, transparency and self-service, mm -hmm. right? You, you, if you're able to find the information you need on your own, that's empowering in and of itself. And then if you talk to members in your community that may be having the same trouble or needing the same information, you're able to provide that to them or explain it to them. Now you're sharing knowledge, which is also empowering from the resident standpoint. If a municipality or a government agency shields that off or walls it off or makes it hard, then you're gonna have this, this collective friction start growing because nobody can get access to the communication. And then that's what the community members start talking about. And then that ultimately leads to, well, I can't trust them because they don't want me to get the information. So clearly they must be doing something, you know, they're, they're doing something with my taxpayer dollars that, that, that I just don't know what it is. So I'm just not going to trust it. The other element too, that makes it important is agencies, municipalities are needing to evolve into the now, which is a digital experience. If you think about COVID, Amazon, everything's click now, get it tomorrow. Now, thankfully, some of the work that we've done, um, by and large, most people think their municipality is kind of working and functioning at a level of expectation, expectation that makes sense, right? Um, and I've, I've joked about, I think it was Zootopia with the slots at the DMV, right? There, there's that kind of 
think, okay, I got to go deal with the government. Everything's going to move slow. So there's already that expectation. Um, and then the fact that you don't know what you're looking for or how to ask for it, because there's a lot of jargon and terminology, it becomes confusing. But if you simplify that process and make it a little bit more efficient, um, you, you, you start being able to understand how your community needs the services that, that you need to provide. And almost everybody I've ever talked to, we're talking probably close to 300 people in the last year and a half, because we do a lot of qualitative interviews as well. Um, by and large, most people view their job as service to the public. So, so they go to work knowing that they're doing something good for the community. So they want to continue that and they want to do it the best way possible. And if they don't have the right tools to make doing good better and easier, it's frustrating for them. But it also allows them to start understanding the areas of the community that may not want digital technologies. They're afraid of it, right? And that's something that we have in our findings is that if you look at folks that have the most trust in a municipality and compare them with those that have the least amount of trust, what you see is higher levels of engagement among those that are more trusting and you also see a higher level of early adopter behavior with technology. Those that have the least amount of trust, they're slow to adopt. You know, it could be a lot of different things that go into that. It could be demographic, you know, whatever. There's a lot of different reasons why people are just slow to adopt. But it's important for a municipality to identify those pockets of the community because you can't just suddenly throw everything in a digital format and just say, okay, we're live and walk away. Now you're disenfranchising certain members of your community. So as you start engaging more and you start understanding the, the, the different pockets that need the different services, then you can start investing intelligently. And really, quite frankly, from my point of view, it's meeting your public where they wanna be met and bringing them on the journey. I mean, some folks may have internet. I mean, what is like 90, 90 some odd percent of Americans have used the internet, right? So there's a huge number. But, but maybe they only use Facebook and now they're intimidated to go to a government website. But if we educate them and say, actually, if you go to the government website, you can pay for your pet licenses right there. there there's just an easier way to transact that maybe you're, you're not um, thinking about because you have got this wall up because of technology. So understanding all those different dynamics and really helping the municipality get into what is needed where and how to reach their community members better is, is an awesome, awesome thing. So then would you say, like, in terms of, like, top-line takeaways of of this report, one of the most important being having that, like, breadth of option for, for folks who, as you said, maybe are ready to take that, like, digital leap, um, but while also maintaining some of the services, right, that, like, people use to um, continue and establish their trust? Yep. And, and even from a, a practical sense, right? So every municipality is going to have to continue to accept cash, for example. Cash is more of an in-person, unless you're mailing in a check or, you know, there's, there's ways to get around, but cash is kind of always going to be there. So you're always going to have that kind of manual person-to-person um, -person type of experience. Um, but when you start investing in the digital side of it, and you're making it frictionless across the different solutions. So we have a bunch of different point solutions. It's making it easier for the residents to find the information they want, but it's also breaking down barriers within the municipality 
if, the, if they're using the different solutions that talk to each other. Now it creates some sort of seamless, efficient way for department A to talk to department B. You can find information better. And now ultimately you can provide better service to your, to your public because the public can find it, but you can also find it a heck of a lot easier. I don't know if I am I'm answering your question there. I'm loving yeah. the conversation, by the way. So, oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I am too. I, I the civics is something that like so fascinates me, um, mm -hmm. and especially like trust, like the notion of trust, and like foundationally, what are the things that like governments can be doing better to mm -hmm. earn that right? Because I, I it is an earned thing. Um, I think is so important and it's it's so relevant and so timely. Um, and, but... and one thing that agencies, you know, again, it's Brendan's observation speaking, okay. is, is taking your public along on the journey with you, right? Sometimes yeah. you see agencies will invest in something and then you just launch it, but, but a, a good effective way to, to get the public involved as you talk about it before you're doing it. You're saying, hey, we've identified these gaps. We've identified these needs. So now you're starting the conversation, town halls, things like that, surveying, whatever, just getting the information in before you're actually investing in it. Then you start talking about, oh, it's gonna take this much money. It's gonna take this level of effort to actually bring about this change. And so you start saying, hey, this is what we need to do this is what we are doing. And then from the results from our data, strongly support that when people are aware of whatever that solution is, they support tax dollars being spent on those solutions, which is a huge thing. So if you think about it from an agency standpoint, talking about what needs to get done, now I need to go out for a bond measure or levies or, or do some increase, you know, take a different level of property tax or whatever that funding mechanism is, maybe even getting grant monies, right? Now you have a reason to get grant monies, then people will support that investment. So now they see that you've identified the problems that they are already living with because they know what the problems are. You're taking corrective measures to fix it. You're investing their tax dollars wisely and responsibly, which is a big, big deal. And then you launch it, but you don't just launch it and set it free in the wild, right? There's a whole education marketing type of campaign that should happen. So that's the ideal state when I say I'm providing any sort of recommendations, taking the citizens or the residents, the public along on the journey with you is, is better than just plug and play, drop and go, right? Um, and then you're, ultimately, I think one of the questions you asked is what's one of the key takeaways? I think it's that operational transparency. You're lifting the veil of how government works. You're providing access to the information. Like I, if I know when a meeting, if I know what topics are being addressed at a city meeting, and I know when the city meetings are, and I know how to read the materials that are being presented, and I can hear the staff reports, and I can hear the community debate that's going on among the leadership, I may not like the end result, whatever that policy decision could be, but ultimately I saw it happen in front of me because I had access to it. So I can trust that they're doing it. I just may not like, I may not be satisfied with the outcome, but at least I know they're doing their job and they're spending my tax dollar wisely, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a powerful dynamic that, that I, I see a lot of municipalities taking a lot of great strides with that. I think with ARPA funding and a lot of federal funding coming out of COVID has really helped move the needle on that. Um, and there's a lot of communities that really want to, but unfortunately they just don't have the funding to invest in a lot of that. So 
it's going to be a slow progress to get all municipalities up to kind of like that Amazon bar, probably many, 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 many years from now. Um, but as long as uh, community leaders recognize that need and start identifying those opportunities and working towards those solutions, technology is a great tool in that space. It, I mean, it, it, it's, it provides you to leap higher than taking small steps, right? Brendan Elwood, Vice President of Market Research at Civic Plus. You can read more about him and the findings of the company's report at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. Coming up next week from Statescoop, the 2023 IT Modernization Summit. This year's virtual summit takes place on September 19th. You'll hear from more than two dozen leaders in state and local government, as well as higher education on all things digital transformation. Register now for Statescoop's IT Modernization Summit on September 19th. You can find registration links for the summit in today's show notes and always at statescoop.com. Amazon Web Services is committing $20 million for a K-12 cybersecurity grant program that will be available to all K-12 school districts and state departments of education in the country. The company made the announcement alongside the White House's K-12 cybersecurity summit last month. Kim Majerus is the company's vice president of U.S. public sector education, state, and local government. She tells me what it was like at the White House for the announcement and what she's seeing as top priorities for the state and local community going forward. Well, first and foremost, anytime you're able to represent your organization at that stage, it's it's an absolute honor. So um, we had found out that the White House was doing this event and they were focusing it on K through 12. And as you know, with my responsibility on the education side, um, we have been tracking and working with multiple school districts across the U.S. that had experienced a cyber breach in some way, shape or form. In addition, and I, I think we talked about this one time before, when you think about the state of Arizona, for example, the grant that they provided to all agencies, whether you're a municipality or, or K through 12 or any government agency within the state, they had a grant last year and they renewed that grant this year to help address cyber with cyber grant funds. So really, when you start to think about some of the ideas that are already being implemented, I thought it would be a fantastic opportunity for AWS to participate and show that we want to lean in and help establish the K through 12 and Department of Education with an opportunity to build their cyber practice in a way that would protect students and protect student information. You know, it's, it's some of the stories that we heard during the event itself. Um, is, is, is a challenge. LAUSD, who also spoke at our reInvent, I'm sorry, not reInvent, reimagine event in Sacramento when they had the huge cyber breach right before the last school year, it just goes to the magnitude of what bad actors will try to do to gain access to ransom, to, to ransom the school district by ways of tax, uh, taking literally taxpayer dollars to try to buy back. Now, the good news is a lot of these States have already established um, policy that they don't negotiate with, uh, with terrorists, so to speak. So it's good to hear that uh, they're doing it. But the cost associated for any school district um, going through a ransomware attack is significant, but it also impacts student learning time. So when you think about the whole opportunity to which AWS was able to present, um, at least our commitment was the $20 million grant to any K through 12 DOE. We are providing free upskill and reskill through our AWS Skill Builder, which is um, well, which has curated content on how to get staff 
familiar with cyber and more importantly, how to uh, address their infrastructure with cyber solutions. And then um, another commitment was to the ad techs. When you think about large ad techs, and they spoke at the event as well, um, who are providing mission critical, such as student information systems, learning management platforms that have access to that data. We are providing well-architected security reviews to help them ensure that their systems are secure because a lot of our K through 12 are buyers versus builders. What have you heard from some of those, those folks, those ed tech companies, those K through 12 districts about this announcement and about uh, their desire to, to work alongside you? Yeah, within the first 23 minutes of, of releasing the press, uh, we literally had uh, a state reach out to us to ask how we can help them. Um, the one other thing that, uh, and we'll send you the full description of what the service is. So I look at it this way. There's things that you could do before an attack. There's things that you could do during an attack. And there's things that you should do to recover. So the last piece that we offered is if there's any districts or DOEs or uh, mission critical systems, we also have a customer, uh, customer response um, incident service that we will come in and help them sort out where is the breach, how do they uh, how do they mitigate, and then more importantly, how do they recover so they don't lose the data. So um, we'll send you, if you haven't seen the full press release story, I'll send it over, but the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. We are getting uh, several, we're getting a lot of inquiries, and really it's mapping them to the right solution because each environment is uniquely different, and some may have some aspect security, but haven't really um, completed their journey uh, with their cyber uh, hardening of their environment. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so it's interesting, when we had first uh, decided to talk, you and I, we were planning to talk about generative AI, uh, and then of course this White House announcement and, and then Amazon's announcement as well came alongside. So so let's pivot to generative AI. I mean, it's it's other than Perfect. cybersecurity, it's, the, um, it's, it's that, that buzzword that doesn't seem to go away and everyone seems to be talking about it. And so, uh, you know, what are you seeing across the community when it comes to generative AI and how are you working with state and local and, and, and education as well to uh, educate and inform, but also help them sort of get their arms around some of these new technologies? Yeah, you know, Jake, it's a great question. And when we were out at Imagine, which is our SLG and EDU event, we, had, we held it in Sacramento last last month it is already there was not one conversation that we had with customers or um, technologists that didn't bring up the conversation but it's really about how do we demystify it a little bit and if you think about it you know amazon has invested heavily in the development of ai and ml for you know over 20 years it's critical to how we run our business so it's not really deeply embedded in many of our own solutions but you know really in our customer solutions um, when I think about the asks of what is it, how do I use it, take a look at some of the work that we're doing with um, even contact centers. Um, Amazon Connect is a great example of using some of the AI opportunities and with some of our uh, other services to solve and answer questions um, more predictively versus uh, how they've answered them in the past. But it really, the number one thing is the demystification of it. And that's where when we work backwards with our customers, and I know we've talked about that process 
that Amazon takes regularly. Um, once you work back from what problem are you trying to solve and find the technology solution that supports that solution, it all really falls into place. So, you know, think about governments with sensitive data. We can't actually put that in, um, you know, in consumer environments, it's customer data. So I think that's the opportunity that our customers are seeing. It's like, how do we protect the information versus it um, sitting in a public domain? So that's really where Amazon Bedrock comes into play. And that's, that for me is the game changer in the conversations because our state, local, and education organizations are concerned about um, where that information is and how it's leveraged by technology. How are you working with folks to sort of, uh, again, as you said, you know, educate, inform, um, bring, you know, bring them up to speed and, and close that knowledge gap about the reliability of some of the content that can come out of a generative AI and, and how are you helping them maybe orchestrate and, and um, put together some policies and procedures around that? We make AWS the easiest place to build their foundation model, you know, the foundational Importantly, it's based off of the data that they have, and it literally allows the democratization access for the builders that they want building from. So you, you got to take a step back. It, this is more about how do you leverage the data within your secure environments to solve for the problems that you're solving for versus public domain information. Does, does that make sense? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, on the on the policy and procedure side, you've seen cities like San Jose put out guidelines of how employees yeah. should use and report their use of, of generative AI. You've seen states like Maine say, hey, don't use this yet. <laughs> we need to continue to evaluate it. Uh, what are you hearing from customers? What are you saying to customers as they try to put plans like this together? Well, Jake, it's funny you should bring up both those articles I actually forwarded to the team to say, hey, make sure you're aware because those policies that state and local governments are putting is because of the concern of where is this information at and how do we ensure that it's secure? So, you know, we need to ensure that they're educated on how Bedrock literally keeps it within their environment and is private. That's the piece that government, you know, we're still trying to educate government um, technology, so you know, people who are using the technology to solve for their, their business issues. So that's the number one thing that we spend time on is helping them understand how is it secure, how is it protected, and how does that remain private so it's not public domain information. So I, I think that's the piece that when you look at the opportunity of the policies that they set forth, those policies are set forth only if they understand which technology that they're using. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I think the, the conversation around generative AI has really sort of reignited uh, the, the general conversation around AI in, in general uh, across state and local governments. So how are you, you know, helping people parse out the difference between what generative AI does and what some other uses of AI can do and, and sort of where do you see the general state of AI in state and local government right now? Well, I, I do think that they're already using it. It's just how they describe it. So I would say I, I wouldn't discount the fact that 
um, organizations are using AI already. It's just in applications that they're not tying to it. Now, when we think about um, some of the solutions that we have or AI applications like Code Whisperer, that's another great service. I don't know if you've heard about it. Um, you know, there's a lot of these coders are using and spending a significant amount of time writing code. It's pretty straightforward, undifferentiated, but what they could do with Code Whisperer, it really allows them to accelerate the problem sets that they're solving for. And, and using this service can help direct them in a, in, and provide them a way to support the problem statement versus just saying, I wanna use technology. Because again, it's the working backwards that, you know, some of the things that, you know, some of the customer requests that we get is, oh, I think I want to use generative AI for this. And it's just like, okay, what problem are you solving for? And how are you organizing your data? I think the biggest challenge, and you know this with the reporting that you've done, is so many of, of the data sets that governments have are so siloed. So the ability to literally weave between each one of those um, data sets to get a whole view of a citizen, a whole view of citizens that are using programs really changes when you have access to the data. So once we, once we get into that conversation or that dialogue, it really starts with the basic, okay, you have silos of data. What policies are you creating within your city, county, state that allows for data sharing between those systems so that you have the holistic view? of maybe someone who is in the child protective services arena who needs health and human services um, support by ways of Medicare or Medicaid, or how are we ensuring that um, they have a soft landing after they leave uh, protective services? So all those data sets are currently siloed. So when someone comes say, hey, I wanna use generative AI, how do I use it? We're like, okay, what problem set are we solving for? Where's the data at? How do you organize it to solve for that problem? And how do you get more predictive with the services? And I think that's the piece that state and local government, more specifically the state and counties, really have an amazing opportunity to get a better view if they establish policies to share data among systems so that you can have a whole view on a person. And I will say there was, um, we, there's been some great press with some of the work that we're doing with the LA County Defenders. LA County Public Defender, it's the oldest defense firm in the country. It represents over 140,000 residents a year. And they've been representing those in need for un over, a, over 100 years, 109 years to be specific. So the County Defender, the work that they've been doing by document imaging is really been uh, intelligent document imaging. What they've done is instead of making it about a case number, they flipped it to the defendant because the defendant is not a case. The defendant is a person that might have multiple cases or um, might have different support mechanisms available to them. But because they don't look at it, you know, they were looking at case by case. That wasn't uh, the right solution. And I think the county defender, what they've been able to do by using more machine learning and AI within just the case files that they had has solved so many challenges and quite frankly, heartwarming uh, resolutions to problems um, that people are encountering when they're in 
in that scenario. I guess to, to kind of close this out, uh, we've talked about cyber, we've talked about generative AI, we've talked about AI, and now they're a little bit of data management as well. Um, what, what else do you see sort of on the horizon for state and local that folks should be aware of, folks should be watching, and uh, what are you looking forward to uh, for the next year? You know what I'm looking forward to is really the data sharing opportunities that the states have. And the reason why I say that is if you look at the cost that the states have to support their citizens, what's duplicative? What programs are out there today that could be refined and reformed in order to support the needs versus just doing the same thing over and over again? I think their ability to understand the life, you know, the whole life of a, of a citizen could be far more effective in the delivery of the right services versus here's the menu, which one do you want? Having an understanding of more the citizen, how do you address the citizen first? Kind of like the same way the LA County Defenders, let me address the defendant first, let me address their needs. If you think about it, whether it's for a student, whether it's for a citizen, they're on a journey. And how do you get that cradle to grave view of needs that you are you are proactive in your ability to say, hey, Kim, I understand you had a life impacting situation. Have you thought about these state services that I could provide you? Versus, hey, I've just experienced a horrible, a horrible situation. How do I get help from the state? I have to go look for it. But that opportunity to get proactive in citizen solutions and citizen, citizen engagement that's what we're looking forward to seeing the states embrace, but it has to start with the data because right now um, states don't look at it holistically. They look, oh, you're engaged with Department of Child Family Services. Oh, you have Medicare. Oh, you might have Medicaid. Oh, you might be um, in a public welfare uh, program that maybe is not meeting your needs. Having a whole view of what I, what I or any citizen would need proactively is really what I'm hoping for. Kim Majeris, Vice President of U.S. Public Sector Education, State and Local Government at Amazon Web Services. You can read more about her and cybersecurity at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can subscribe to the Priorities Podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, be sure to leave a review or rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin fisher put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.